Hey, I've got some exciting news for you. For nearly a decade, the Social Media Marketing Society has been helping marketers like you to keep up with the changing times. This is our private community just for marketers, and the doors are open right now. When you join, you get access to ongoing training and become part of a welcoming community of marketers who are just like you. Learn more at smmarketingsociety.com. Again, smmarketingsociety.com. Welcome to the Social Media Marketing Podcast, helping you navigate the social media jungle. And now, here is your host, Michael Stelzner. Hello, hello, hello. Thank you so much for joining me for the Social Media Marketing Podcast, brought to you by Social Media Examiner. I'm your host, Michael Stelzner, and this is the podcast for marketers and business owners who want to know what works with social media. Today, I'm going to be joined by Brooke Osmondson, and we're going to explore Google search ads. If you are all in on the social advertising side, but you haven't yet looked at Google search ads, you're going to want to for sure check out this episode. By the way, I'm at Stelzner on Instagram and at Mike underscore Stelzner on Twitter slash X. And if you're new to this podcast, be sure to follow this show so you don't miss any of our future content. Let's transition over to this week's interview with Brooke Osmondson. Helping you to simplify your social safari. Here is this week's expert guide. Today, I'm very excited to be joined by Brooke Osmondson. If you don't know who Brooke is, you need to know Brooke. She's Director of Growth Marketing at Smith Microsoftware, a company that helps wireless carriers provide value-added services. She's also a regular columnist at Search Engine Journal. Brooke, welcome to the show. How are you doing today? I'm good. Thanks for having me today. I'm super excited you're here. Today, Brooke and I are going to explore targeting with Google search ads now, before we get into Google search ads, which is a bit of a tongue twister if I say it too many times, I want to scroll back the clock a little bit and talk about your backstory. How'd you get into marketing? How'd you get into Google ads? Start wherever you want to start, Brooke. Sure. So again, it's weird to think that I've been in digital marketing for 10 years, going all the way back to 2013. I actually got my first digital marketing job right out of college. So I consider myself kind of a minority in that area, but um, it truly was the, like the way to kickstart. I was their only PPC manager, and I did not know that at the time, but I had a really good trainer and he worked at the company. He really just kind of led me side by side for three months and then I was on my own. And so I ended up staying with them for four and a half years um, and I managed three e-commerce brands, multi-million dollar brands, sold single PPC person up until I ended up leaving. And then I went agency side after that for about another four and a half years. And now I'm back in-house. So I've always kind of stayed with the paid search as kind of my specialty, but I've definitely done, you know, all sorts of things, uh, different channels, but also a little bit of SEO, website work in the background, you name it. So I'm curious. So you went to college specifically to get a marketing degree. Is that correct? Or was it a digital marketing or what was the degree? So technically it was a business administration degree. So I went to a smaller private school um, where they didn't have the separate accounting degrees, a separate finance or marketing. It was all just one business. Uh, and then you got to choose your emphasis. And so I did choose an emphasis in marketing. So when I applied for that job, you know, I was just nearing the end of college. You know, it had the word marketing specialist in it. Okay, I'll, I'll apply to this, not quite knowing exactly what digital marketing was, uh, but I learned pretty quick. And again, I honestly probably wouldn't have been able to get where I was at without 
you know, those three months with, with my mentor. Okay. So you graduate college, you get this job at Smith micro in particular, and you're doing Google pay-per-click advertising. And just out of curiosity, how steep was the learning curve for you when you first started doing that? So when I first started right out of college, so again, that was with more of the e-commerce brands and it was, I would say a learning curve, but I was a lot younger. And so I also stayed up later and I was, I was like very eager. It was a really exciting channel. And then, you know, when you're responsible for a lot of dollars, it makes you work a lot harder. The learning curve, those first three months were tough, but then honestly, it would get tougher because then I was on my own. Uh, just because we were limited in staff, but you just really like that's where you have to end up being a self-starter and like leaning on resources, ask for questions and really like finding an online community. Um, so I would say like that also attributed to getting where I am now is like finding the right people online right away. And then when you went to work for an agency, were you specifically handling Google search? Was that your domain expertise when you were doing that? For the most part, but I was also managing more like paid social channels a little bit of programmatic. And so they, you know, I did try to stay specifically within paid media and that's kind of how we grouped everything. I wouldn't say I pigeonholed myself strictly into search, but eventually, you know, working with different clients, B2B, B2C, I really started working with them like holistically on their paid media strategy. And so that's where I really found my sweet spot is understanding how all of those paid channels work together as well as other channels. Like it really helps you become more strategic as you, you know, progress in your career. And, and that's, you know, essentially what I'm doing now with Smith Micro is working with their partners there and helping them develop and execute more so their paid media strategy. We're also branching into like, how does that fit? How does that, you know, value added service fit in their overarching product markets? So you went back, you're now work at Smith Micro, and you're now the director of growth marketing. Somewhere along the line, you started writing for Search Engine Journal. Tell us about how that came into, into the equation. And then tell us a little bit about kind of the day-to-day of what you do today for Smith Micro. Again, I still feel weird saying, oh, I'm a writer. And I, I don't say that people have to remind me, oh, you are a writer. You published 125 articles now, which is, you know, crazy. But honestly, that started as uh, while I was at the agency back then. And, you know, one of my bosses, he was a regular contributor to not only Search Engine Journal, but some other places as well. And he had asked, hey, they're they're looking for new, you know, new talent. And there's a need for people to understand what PPC is and just keeping up to date. And so he's, would you want to start writing articles? And it it started very infrequently, I would say maybe once a quarter. And from there, you know, it just started gradually increasing. And honestly, like, I think it benefits everybody because it allows me to stay up to date in the PPC landscape, especially as my role is now like broadening out more into just the overall online marketing media strategy. So helps me and helps the readers too. So that's the writer part where I'm like, I'm a marketer first, writer second. But then for Smith Micro, you know, my day to day, I would say it depends on the day. So I manage a team of, there's four of us now I have to yeah, we're small but mighty. So I have somebody who helps me with a lot of the day-to-day background. And we actually have international employees. So my go-to person, she's in our Belgrade office. So my mornings typically start pretty early. So I'm meeting with her, making sure that she has everything that she needs. And then I'm also checking in with the rest of my team throughout the day with various projects. I'm also looking at, you know, I'm still looking into our campaigns. How are they doing? How are they running? 
now that it's getting towards the end of the year, doing a lot of forecasting, doing a lot of analysis on, on looking towards 2024 and just kind of researching what's working, what do we want to tweak, but then what do we want to try new in 2024 for new channels? So a, a bit all over the place, but still some structure there, I would say. And for those that aren't familiar with Smith Micro, maybe you can just give a little bit on who the company's customer is that you guys are targeting. Yes, absolutely. So Smith Micro has actually been around for uh, 40 years. I believe last year they just celebrated their 40th anniversary and they've always really been in like the, the tech space. And so I won't go back all of the 40 years, but spoiler alert that I actually was working, you know, with them as a client before I ended up on their full time payroll. So when I when I joined them, I said I'm new to the payroll, but I'm not new to the company. But right now we're really in like the value added services space uh, specifically for wireless carriers. One of our main you know, products and offerings is really within like the family safety industry. So developing technology for parental controls, location tracking. And so then we work with, you know, different wireless carriers throughout uh, whether it's the U.S. or international. Um, and then we also have a few other products, but I primarily you know, focus on kind of that family safety industry. And is, is this a B to B to C play? A, you know what I mean? Like, is, are the ads for the end user, I mean, for the carriers, for example, or are the ads specifically targeting the people that work at the carriers? So when I'm working with the carriers, that, you know, all of that marketing would be strictly B to C. But then the other fun part of my job is, you know, as we look to expand, you know, internationally or with other carriers, I'm then, you know, I'm putting back on my B2B hat. So actually going after those decision makers, those product owners to get in front of them. So my role is kind of that unique B2B to C, uh, which, you know, again, keeps me on my toes. It keeps me both, you know, proficient in, in both verticals, which is really good. Outstanding. Okay. Well, thank you, first of all, for sharing your story. I think it's uh, really useful because I haven't had a lot of brand quote unquote marketers on the show. And I know I have plenty that listen to the show and they're like excited to hear, you know, <laughs> someone who works for a brand that's actually on the show. There are plenty of marketers that are listening right now that are all in on the socials, but maybe not on Google search ads. You know what I mean? And I would love you to share with them maybe what uh, why they ought to pay attention. You know, what's the opportunity for them that they might be missing? Sure. So I was, I was actually just doing research on this the other day, again, writing up the article coming out soon, just kind of on Google ads. But, you know, essentially for somebody who's a little bit biased in paid search, you know, I've seen, I've worked with companies, you know, where we're spending like $1,000 a month all the way up to multiple six figures a month. And it truly is a platform that, you know, if you're giving the right inputs, you and you're working with the right people, whether you're doing it yourself or you're working with an agency, it is like one of the best opportunities to really you know, not only get that low hanging fruit, but also from an awareness standpoint. So a lot of people, when they hear PPC, they think just of, you know, the search ads. And that's that's what it was known for back in 2000 when it when it was founded. But, you know, as you bring in shopping ads, you bring in the YouTube ads, video ads. Now they're doing audio ads. There's so much more that you can do even if you're primarily doing paid social, like there's still that massive reach out there. I believe Google, the last stat that I saw, Google has about just under 92% of the search engine market share globally. If you're not using it, and, and I would say the same thing for Microsoft or, or formerly Bing ads, you know, it has a lot lower market share, but I've seen results on both of those. Going back to Google specifically, it's not just the search results page anymore that your ads can show up on. So they've got, you know, YouTube, their display network, there's like hundreds of thousands of 
uh, websites and apps on there. Um, it's expanded into like your Gmail tab if you ever go into your promotions. So you can get a lot of visibility just outside of search. Yeah. And what I think is really exciting and a lot of people forget about when they think of Google is they, th they forget that they own Gmail and YouTube and the Chrome browser, Google Analytics, like Android operating system, like they've got ridiculous amounts of data that could benefit us when we're doing search, right? Just because someone is searching for one thing, you know, it doesn't necessarily mean you can't still get your ads to them, which I think is absolutely exciting. All right. Let's talk a little bit about like, where do we get started? Because I'm going to take the presupposition that my audience is not active on Google, pay-per-click, whatever their platform is called. So how do we need to get started? So you bring up a good point that I forgot to mention about, you know, why Google ads. And that was the whole conversation around your analytics too. So not only is it a place, you know, where you can get that visibility to your potential customers, but because they are the Google properties. And then if you're using an analytics platform like Google Analytics or GA4, I guess that's what it is now. And Still not used to it, but I don't think anybody is. Like all of your campaigns integrates so pretty seamlessly with Google Analytics. Now, you know, there is the integration requirements set up and whatnot, but that's another reason why like you would want that because of the data that you're getting from those campaigns. So it's not just what they're doing before the click, who you're targeting, but then afterwards, what are they doing on your website or not doing? And you can do a lot of segmentation. And so that's where I'm getting into in terms of like, where do you get started? So I always like to say, if you have not ever run a Google ads campaign, you're not quite sure where to start, but maybe you have even been running social campaigns. You probably have an idea of like who your target audience is or your target persona. So I always recommend, again, if you, I, I'm just going to use the example, if you are using Google analytics, I always like to start there to take a step back and look at who are the people on your website or your app? Who are the ones actually purchasing and who is not purchasing? And then dig a little bit deeper to understand, are they just irrelevant, like not the type of traffic you want, or do they just need a little bit of a nudge? And so looking really at your analytics and your buyers, then you can start to really start creating, you know, these personas, if you will. And it's not just like your demographics. That's the, those are the basics. We'll get into some of that later on. but Looking at that to find, you know, who is your persona and then going back to the integration, you can then start making those those audiences or those, I think they call them segments now. I don't want to misspeak, but interchangeably, you can actually upload those into Google ads. If you don't have an account, just set one up. It's free. But then if you start importing that and you're linking your accounts, then you can actually see something they call it the audience insights within the Google ads platform. So it's not enough to just say, okay, these are the people I want to target. Let's go set up campaigns. I always do my due diligence and will look at that audience insights. And if Google has enough data from those audiences, they will put together, you know, what is that demographic makeup of, of that audience? And then you look at that and start to kind of cross-reference, like from your actual purchaser, your data or your CRM. Do they look the same? Are there any discrepancies? I always like to use the example of when I worked back at the e-commerce company because my trainer was a male, but we worked for a wedding imitations company. Google thought he was a woman because he's doing so many searches on wedding ah, imitations. Okay, so yeah, that's yeah. what, like, I want to give that example because it is so important. Like they do take that behavior based on searching, your browsing activity. So there is going to be some discrepancies. And I 
really encourage you to take a look at that. And and we'll get into like the how to later. But if there are any discrepancies, you know, make note of that. So when you do end up using these to target your campaigns, make sure that you're not either like excluding something you're not supposed to or narrowing things down too much. But using your first party data, I say is like the best place to start. Because if you don't understand who that is, like, then you're just, you know, you're putting a campaign together with keywords, you're putting a budget together, you don't really know who you're targeting. And keywords are a lot more loosely managed these days from Google. And so that's like, it always starts with your audience and who you're talking to. And then going further, if you have multiple audiences, or maybe this group of people reacts differently than these people, segmenting them even further. So then you can segment your campaigns accordingly. So just to be crystal clear, when you say start with your first party data, I think what I'm hearing you say is your email list of customers. That's really what I'm hearing you say, right? Because I heard you say download earlier, but I I wasn't crystal clear on what exactly we were downloading. So presumably you've got a database, right? With all of your customers in it or segmented into different categories if you have different kinds of customers. And you're recommending exporting that as like a CSV file or something like that. And then importing that into Google and then looking at how it's analyzing the data. Is that really what I'm hearing you say? Yes. So they do have multiple considerations for first party data. So for sure, the the best one would be, you know, whatever CRM platform that you have exporting that. Google does provide you a template of, you know, what are the requirements? But at the very minimum, you really just need an email address. If you have more data on them, great, because it just helps the matching process. When you do upload your customer list uh, or your first party data to the platform, it can sometimes take up to 48 hours, but it will then give you, you know, the size of those audiences. So you have a better understanding of essentially the match rate. So if, for example, if you gave Google a list of 100,000 emails, but then your lists come back where maybe you can target 60,000, well, that's about a 60% match rate. So that means like you're not necessarily getting everybody. So the more data you have on them and can provide the better, but email is a great place to start. Other areas of kind of like, well, you could argue if it's first or second or third party, if you will, would be, you know, if you're creating segments of purchasers in Google Analytics and then importing those as well. But when we're starting like from scratch, even if you, especially like maybe people don't have Google Analytics set up, looking at your CRM and using that to, to kind of be like your, your starting point for understanding that. Okay. So we've got our first party data loaded up into Google. That's kind of the first step where we've checked it to make sure it matches with what we believe to be true about our personas or customer profiles. What's the next thing? Oh, gosh. Okay. So we're analyzing everything. Then it gets into like, how are we setting up these campaigns? So I think for this example and, you know, easiest to say, like, let's just assume we're going to be using search ads. So you have your audience, you know, and then I really like I like to say the the successes and the settings. So usually you're going to set up your audiences at the campaign level or potentially ad group level if you have multiple. Then you have your core keywords. You have to do your due diligence, your keyword research on like, what would people be searching to find your product or service? And I always like to say, like, especially if you work in product marketing, like your users do not search the way that you think they do or the way you talk about your product. So that I see that discrepancy a lot. So you know, making sure you're doing any sort of keyword research and whether that's using third-party tools like 
I use SEM Brush or, or SpyFu, or you can even like actually go into Google and just start typing and they'll give, you know, predictive results. You can also look at trends. What about Google Analytics? Do they give us any insights? Like, can we look at our Google Analytics to see how people got to the website through search, search queries or do they not provide that? I'm going to say it depends because it depends on how you set up your Google Analytics. So if you are capturing that data, I would say if you have that integrated and you have it set up correctly, you should be able to see some stuff. But I think we all know that, especially with organic data, I feel like Google takes a little bit more every single day, every single month. You don't, you don't get a lot of that. But if you do have your search console set up, that's more of an organic tool. If you can get any data or context behind that, that's a great way to also take a look at that as well. Now, when it comes to these core keywords, and especially considering artificial intelligence, is Google really smart? Like you, like I remember in the olden days, you had to you had to use Boolean logic and all this kind of stuff, right? To figure it all out. Can you just be very kind of vague or, and it just kind of knows or how specific do you need to get? I am learning to be vague. Um, and I hate saying that, uh, to be honest, because I was doing PPC back in the day where you had one single keyword per ad group and it was broken out by different match types. So for those of you listening who don't understand what match types are, Google uh, has three different ones. I'd argue they have two at this point, but that's nor here nor there. Um, so they have exact match, which essentially means you're bidding on a keyword that your ad will show up if the user searches exactly that keyword. Like your company name, right? Or your product. Yes, exactly. Or, you know, wedding invitations, that very specific keyword. Now they've kind of loosened the match type restrictions. So because what I found out is Google is really trying hard to understand the intent or the context of the user search. So if they also believe that that keyword, it might not be the exact keyword of, you know, wedding invitations, but they think the context of a user search would match that, then your ad could show. But that's typically the most like narrow you can get. And then it used to be best practice to segment your campaigns and, and ad groups by that. And then all the way to like the most broad is actually your broad match keywords. I used to hate them. They performed horribly back in the day. They had something called broad match modifier, but that has gone. So it's not a point to talk about it anymore. But getting back to that in terms of like, how do you approach, you know, the, the narrowness or the broadness of your keywords? I'm kind of to the point where I'm starting to, you know, I continue to group things accordingly. So I'm never going to put, you know, a hundred keywords in an ad group because that just, it doesn't make sense. It's not efficient. I typically will group keywords by either their category or theme. So think about like your website and how that's structured. So to make it easy, I'm going to go back to the wedding invitations uh, example. But you know, if they, if you're looking for like rustic or art deco or vintage, you know, I'm going to group keywords like that accordingly, but then I'm going to set specific budget aside just for the word wedding invitations because that's that's too broad that you know that could mean anything like so i'm also looking at it by the volume of the keyword the popularity if i grouped everything into one campaign what's going to take up the most budget probably just the wedding invitations keyword so then you're not even like doing your due diligence to show the other keywords so grouping by theme but also by volume would be important and i'm still going to go back like they're only going to work as well as your audience as well so making sure you've got that set, you can afford to go a little bit broader if you have a, a, you know, your audience narrowed. I was recently at Social Media Marketing World and I had a chance to connect with some of our best customers. 
A lot of them listen to our podcast, just like you do. Not everyone knows what I'm about to share with you. We do something special here at Social Media Examiner. The best of the best of the guests that you hear on the Social Media Marketing Podcast not only teach at our conference, but they're also part of our secret society called the Social Media Marketing Society. Each month, our top-tier guests who have been on my show are invited to train inside our society for an exclusive group of marketers who are just like you. The training is designed to help you go from being a passive consumer of content to a marketer who is in active learning mode. So if you're ready to make real progress with your marketing, you're a perfect fit for the Social Media Marketing Society. Join us by visiting smmarketingsociety.com. We've got a really big sale that is ending very soon, so don't delay. Again, visit smmarketingsociety.com and join today. Yeah, let's let's zoom in on some of the targeting options. Once we have some keywords in place, what are our targeting options? So Google has come a long way, and I'm very proud of them, especially because I would say back in the day, they really didn't do a lot of favors for B2B. You could probably still argue that they don't, but I will give them credit where it's due. So, you know, outside of your first party data, which again, you've got that as a start, but say you're looking to expand your reach even further within search specifically. Um, and I'm going to I'm going to stick to that because if we went to all the different campaign types, you'd have a lot more options. But for search, you know, you have your basic demographic targeting. So the age range, the gender, location, household income. So then we start to get into their detailed demographics. So with search specifically, so you can do things like, you know, are they a parent? But are they a parent of age ranges of, you know, they have different buckets of like zero to one, one to three, you know, all the way up to 17. And then I believe they have a bucket of, you know, after, after 17, like adult children. So really looking into those detailed demographics, you can also get into their education level. So what was their highest level of attainment? Once you get a little bit further than high school, it does get to be pretty broad where it's like bachelor's degree, a doctorate or, or a PhD. So you can't get too specific, but you can at least get to, you know, that professional level. And then I would say like from a B2B standpoint, they did end up putting in more employment details. So they, they did introduce the company size. And again, those are in buckets. And then they also have the company industry where they have a set amount. So just kind of think of your high level, like construction or technology or healthcare. Um, again, you can't just like put individually what you want, but they've come a long way. So you can actually use those to either target them specifically. You could use them to exclude. Um, I've actually done that in some instances where you are bidding on broad keywords, but you're going after a B2B, but regular consumer might like actually search the same thing. So you can use those targeting options interchangeably. But another important thing to note is they have a, you know two methods. So targeting would be, I want to go after these people specifically. Then they have their, what they call observation method. So that essentially means if you are layering those audiences on as observation only, when you bid on those keywords, your ads will still show to like basically anybody who searches who are also in your other criteria of like location and whatnot, but it's going to observe that specific audience subset differently. That's going to give you data on, do they tend to click through more often? Do they tend to convert more often? So that's always a setting. Like when I, when I'm doing audits, I usually see like, they're like, why, why is my audience targeting not working? 
Well, if you have it set to observation, you're not actually targeting them. You're, you're gathering data on them, but you're also targeting a bunch of other people that you probably didn't intend to. Okay. I would love to get some clarification on a couple of things here. First of all, on this observation method, it sounds like it's like a learning thing or whatever, right? But you're still paying for it or you're not paying for it. Like, like what's, why would anybody use this? Help me understand that. Sure. So I've actually used observation only. And actually for a couple of campaigns that I'm still running, I do use that. So to clarify your first question, are you paying for it? Yes, you are. So when you set an audience to observation only, that just means that you're essentially gathering the data on how that particular segment is, you know, how are they searching? Uh, and so you, when you actually go into your campaign performance, you can actually look at audiences and see, you know, impressions, clicks, click-through rate, conversions, all of that. And then you can compare it to people who aren't in that audience segment. So you just, you haven't narrowed down your targeting to, I'm only going to target these people specifically. It's, I want to see how they're engaging with me, but I'm also like, you know, letting everybody else, like I'm letting my ads show to everybody else who who's searching that. So I, th I think what I'm hearing you say is that when you're in observation mode, it's going to provide you some level of detail that you might not get if you were not in observation mode. And it seems as if you can use this data to decide whether or not to turn things on and off. Is that kind of what I'm hearing you say? Yes. And that's, that's getting into like, why would I use it? So say, you know, with some of these detailed demographics, for example, when they were in beta, I was getting extremely limited reach when I would target those people specifically. I'm like, oh my gosh, like I have a daily budget of $500 and I'm not even getting close to it. Like what, what gives? Well, I found my targeting was too narrow with how I had crafted and segmented. And, you know, I'm like, I'm pulling the pieces from all these different areas. So then I pulled it back a little bit. I'm like, well, let me put it on observation only and see, you know, see what that does. So it broadened it back out. So I was still getting more data. Um, but yes, essentially it is that Google is telling and learning or learning and telling you about these particular groups of people. And then you decide, is it worth like still just narrowing in on them specifically or making some sort of other optimization because of that? Got it. Okay, cool. I think what I'm hearing you say is when you're in observation mode, it's going to widen the lens a little bit and it's going to allow a little bit more data to come in so that you can make an intelligent choice and then turn off observation mode and just go deep towards that ideal dialed in audience. Am I hearing that correctly? Correct. And now I just realized I went down a rabbit hole. We were talking about detail demographics and it, I think I made it sound like that's like your only option for search. And I got too excited. And so obviously, like I wanted to get into a little bit more of like what other options do you have yeah, please do. outside of the detailed demographics and your first party data. So these other ones, they get to be more like top of funnel, mid to funnel, top of funnel. So Google has something called in-market audience. And that just kind of means they're in market. So they've observed these people and they group them into certain segments based on, again, how they're searching, what websites have they been to, like any sort of user behavior that they have on them that they're being tracked um, and they're grouping them into segments. So I typically like to use those again, at, especially if I'm trying something new, might use it as an observation only for a week or two, but then I target and then kind of going a step further. Wait, real quick, uh, uh, clarification on the in-market. Yes. That's a phrase that I'm not sure my audience is familiar with. I'm going to guess what it means. It means they're in the market, for example, for a car or furniture or something, because they're, they're showing activities that indicates they're about to buy something. Is that what I'm hearing you say? Yes. Thank you for that clarification. So yes, in market for, you know, Google ads essentially means that 
these people are are essentially they're getting ready. They're in their research mode before they're purchasing something. And this is where there's tons of different categories. So not only like going back to the car example you just gave, you can you can say people who are in market for a car, but then you actually have the option to go further. Are there certain types of brands or models that they're interested in? So you can use that. Are they in market to buy a house, which I don't know who would be right now, uh, but that's besides the point. Kind of depends where you live, right? I mean, like, you know. I know I'm still hopeful. You know, I'm really hopeful because, you know, I want my want my born property somewhere. But the in market, again, is not just for B2C. They do have, I would say, categories that you could leverage for a B2B company there. You know, if you're looking, if so, say somebody's looking for an agency, they actually have an in market available for that, too. So that would be considered like more mid funnel where you could expand a little bit more. Then they also have something called affinity audiences. And this would be I would categorize more of who are they like from a lifestyle perspective. That's probably the best way to put it. Are they shopping enthusiasts? Are they business professionals? Do they travel a lot? Um, So those are meant to be more high level, meant to be more of that like wider reach. So I typically don't use those affinity audiences as a target only because it's just way too broad. But if you're in the travel industry, you might want to, right? Exactly. Like Google's information on anybody is not foolproof. And that goes back to my old coworker who was deemed a female because of Google and his wedding invitations habit. So it's not foolproof. And so I always make sure to like take a look at are there any categories that I might be missing or like that would actually make sense. And so that's where observation only comes in. Like if the campaign is broad enough and you're like, okay, I'm okay spending some money just to like gather data, great way to use it. So that would be, I'd consider more top of funnel. I see more people use that for like display or, or YouTube ads. But then really the last one is when you kind of start getting into like your custom audiences. And that's essentially where you can pick different pieces of different areas. So say I want to target a parent, you know, who's children are ages like 10 to 13. But then I also want to target that they're in market for something. So you're essentially like building different pieces and then you can create custom audiences. Uh, You can also use something, they call it contextual targeting. I think that it's just super confusing. Um, But essentially you can use, you know, specific keywords that either they're searching on or uh, they've been on a website that has that category. Custom, like you can pretty much do a lot of things. You can slice and dice or create like very specific category audiences, if you will. Very cool. Okay. So we've talked about this observation mode. We've talked about the affinity audiences. We talked about the in-market audiences. And you briefly mentioned that, hey, this data, this first party data we were talking about earlier, you can set up exclusions, right? You didn't mention lookalike audiences. I'm curious. Uh, that is available, right? Or is that not something that works really well anymore? Honestly, I have to go back because Google will call them like similar audiences. Now, similar audiences either are going away or they already have gone away. I, oh, really? I would have okay. to double check. I will do my due diligence. So like I know a lot of social platforms will use the term lookalike. And, you know, those can be really, you know, I've, I've seen pretty good results with those. But with Google, like, again, with with how they're phasing out similar audiences, I tend to like not really like pay attention to those. And I'm going to be more looking at my first party data. But then with your audience insights, it'll actually tell you like what categories of these other 
you know, in markets or affinity audiences that they might be in, like your customers. And then I'm going to use those attributes to kind of maybe create like an awareness campaign that I'm going after net new customers and maybe excluding my first party data customers. Okay. So first of all, awesome overview of all the targeting options. And obviously I know this wasn't in our agreed upon questions, but people have to remember Google search is text only, right? So we're talking about what are we talking about? How many characters are in a text ad? I mean, I know, I know it can get really complicated. I've seen the ads where they got all these little subsections, but isn't it still like, like a tweet almost like the old fashioned tweet? You know what I mean? Like what's the limit on it? You know, that's a, that's a good analogy. What, depending on who's listening, that they might hate the analogy. So essentially for Google search, yes, they, I mean, there's been iterations of the anatomy of a search ad, but right now they use something called a responsive search ad. So I'll get into the character limits. Essentially, what makes up a search ad is typically two to three headlines that will show. It will also depend on your device. So each headline, you will get 30 characters. And those are like usually like the big blue headlines first. So like that, that's the eye catcher. I haven't really seen them just show one. I've seen them show two or three. So you can, you can expect that. And then you have description, description lines. So I typically always see two of those show, which is the maximum. And those are 90 characters each. So you do have a good, like a decent amount of room. But with responsive search ads, the beauty of that is you're actually inputting up to 15 headlines and then up to four description lines. And then Google will essentially take those and mix and match and show them differently based on, you know, the individual user, what is actually performing well after it gets out of learning mode. So it also makes your job a little bit harder because you can't just repeat the same things over and over in different ways. Uh, you have to get really creative on uh, like what you want those to look like. Uh, but then you also have to get just strategic on if there is a specific message that you want to make sure shows up at every single ad. So they do give you the option to actually, it's called a pin. So say you are having a sale and you, it's like 25% off. And you want to make sure that that shows like I maybe pin that in headline two to make sure that it's always showing. So you do have that option. They never recommend using it, but I would say play around with it. But to your point of it, the text only, they do have, they're called assets. They were formerly called extensions, but they, they started rolling out different assets that basically complement the ad. So say you have a product or a product feed, uh, your star ratings can appear. If you have a physical location, your uh, location address can appear. People can actually click on it. And I believe it opens maps or depending on what device you're on. They actually have image assets. So now they're starting to get a little bit more visual, kind of competing with shopping ads and, and everything else. But it allows you to have images. And there are restrictions on that, on what you can and can't do. But I've seen a lot of those pop up as well just to make it look more organic, actually. But the images are not in search, right? Those are more display? Or is that actually showing up in search? So that's where it gets a little tricky. So like that's something you would have to implement into your campaigns. So sometimes they will show up. It would be on the right side of, of a text ad. But you're correct. Typically, images and videos are associated with display campaigns where those are shown more like natively around like a web page. Oh yeah. You know, I've, that's true. I forget about that. Sometimes I do remember if I'm on desktop, I do see these little graphical ads on the side, but on mobile, you don't see that right on mobile. You just see the tech stuff. It's pretty few and far between. And I feel like they're always 
testing. Yeah. Now I like want to pick up my phone and like do a real time search, but we won't do it. Yeah, um, I mean, I, And I might even be in my mind mistaking that with how Facebook used to do. I don't know. All right. Next question. I want to, I want to get to this question about bidding strategies. Just give us a couple thoughts on whatever tips we need to have in mind when it comes to bidding. Yes. So the other like successful part of your campaign is going to be how you set your bidding strategies. So I said earlier, like your successes in the settings, and this is one like you don't want to ignore. Really what you need to know before you set up your campaigns would actually be kind of like more of like the overarching business goal. So say you have a target uh, return on ad spend goal or an ROI or a target cost for acquisition. Like those are all good, I would argue, necessary pieces of information that you should have because those are more of the smart bidding strategies that Google will use. Um, And actually that's recommended, especially if you're using any sort of audience targeting. In fact, what I just learned, I can't believe this, is with your first party data, if you truly are going to use like that uploaded CRM list, you do need to use a smart bidding strategy. You cannot use their manual CPC. I actually didn't know that. And I learned the hard way after like a week or so. I'm like, wait a minute. So smart bidding strategies are super important. And picking the right one based on your goals is even more important. You know, I'll try to give an example off the top of my head. Like if you have a target CPA of $50. So you set that, but maybe like you set your daily budget for $50 or $100. Like that, like you're not aligning like the actual setting, like how you should be setting a campaign up based on your CPA. Like you have to make sure that all of those other inputs are aligned with that target CPA. The other example I would give would be if you are bidding on your brand terms, which are a lot less costly. And obviously you have a lot lower target CPA than that compared to a non-brand or like the wedding invitations example. That particular campaign might have a CPA of like $200. So making sure you're setting that target CPA per campaign level at an accurate amount is going to give Google the opportunity to learn how is that actually performing. And obviously you want to make sure that you're always optimizing, but you have to start somewhere and just making sure that you're not setting the same target CPA or same target ROAS on all of your campaigns. Like I will say you will not be happy with the results and neither will your boss or your manager, you know, kind of understanding like the bigger, the bigger picture, how those work and the overall business goals will help with that. Okay. Since you brought it up, I have to ask, I never understood why people buy their brand name when they dominate in the top slot on Google search. Like oh. I can understand if you had a special sale going on, you didn't want them to go to the homepage or something and, and you wanted that to show up before. But a lot of times I don't get it. Are they just concerned someone else is going to buy it and they're bidding against it? Like, or is this just an agency that's just wasting the company's money? I am like, already waiting for people to fight me on this one. So like, just please, like it is a very divided topic, like believe it or not. Well, like, give us your take. Yeah. I have always been team like bid on your brand. Really? Okay. Bid on your brand. That might be a hill I will die on. Like I'm always open for healthy discussion, but I guess in my eyes, there's not a reason why you wouldn't. People can, and I have seen them argue, well, if you didn't have your ad there, well, then we'd be just, we'd just be getting more free organic traffic. And like, yeah, it might absorb some, like it's not guaranteed that it will absorb all of that paid traffic. So even if there aren't competitors bidding on your terms, most likely like you are, like somebody is. So making sure that you're controlling the narrative at the top, if somebody's starting to search, especially if you're doing any sort of brand awareness efforts, and then somebody goes to actually search your brand, like you want to make sure that you are like protecting that space. 
I think another area that really a lot of people don't think about is the opportunity to use it like for any necessary like PR efforts. And, and I hear that. I hear that. I think, okay, those are legit good reasons, right? Like if you have other people that are going to potentially bid against it, I would imagine they're going to pay more than you're going to pay because Google knows that you own that domain, right? And you'll get a better rate on it. Exactly. And then you could put promotions up there too that they might not see if they're just Googling the name of your company, which could for sure get someone deeper down the funnel. Those are all reasons I hadn't considered. And those are all absolutely legit reasons. Brooke, I want to thank you, first of all, for answering my gazillions of questions and 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 taking that that last question, which of course is a big old can of worms I don't want to necessarily open right now. <laughs> but what I do want to do is I want to give everybody a chance to reach out to you. So Brooke, if people want to connect with you on the socials, do you have a preferred way of them reaching you? And if there's anywhere else you want to send anybody, where do you want to send them? Sure. Um, well, I am probably most active on LinkedIn. Um, so you can just find me like at Brooke Osmondson. So we always joke it's easier than it sounds to actually pronounce. So you can find me there. Um, I am also, I would say, like decently active on Twitter. And that would be the same. My handle is just at Brooke Osmondson. There's no space or or any other characters there. Um, so those would be the main like two ways to to get a hold of me. I am pretty active. I, I check messages and whatnot, you know, throughout the week. But yeah, and then if you're ever interested, you know, kind of hearing more of what we do at Smith Micro, um, our website is simply smithmicro.com. Yeah, and for those that are listening, it's B-R-O-O-K-E, and then Osmundson is O-S-M-U-N-D-S-O-N, just because, you know, if you spelled it phonetically, you might not really catch the D. Brooke, thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing your insights with us. Yes, thanks for having me, and I look forward to talking more further with anybody who has more questions. Hey, if you missed anything, we took all the notes for you over at socialmediaexaminer.com slash 585. If you're new to this show, be sure to follow us. If you've been a longtime listener, would you let your friends know about this show? At Stelzner on Instagram and at Mike underscore Stelzner on Twitter. Those are my social handles. This brings us to the end of yet another episode of the Social Media Marketing Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Stelzner. I'll be back with you next week. I hope you make the best out of your day and may social media continue to change your world. The Social Media Marketing Podcast is a production of Social Media Examiner. Hey, just a quick reminder, join the Social Media Marketing Society today and level up your marketing for your company or your clients. Visit smmarketingsociety.com to find out more.